Okay. We're still in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 13, and um, we are testing a new uh, live stream system. Oh, that sounded horrible. Hold on a second. Um, we're testing a new live stream system. Um, so if you see me up front, I'm messing with my phone. I'm going through the slides uh, so that people, uh, so this new system would uh, have this automated way of doing slides and stuff. So I'm testing something. Uh, so hopefully in the next few weeks, um, if you are at home and you're having to watch at home, we'll have a, a, a better camera view, better audio view. Uh, we're trying to do audio through the sound system so you don't hear any background noise or any white noise or anything like that. So um, it's something we've been working on for about a month or so. Um, we're still trying to work through the kinks and things like that. So um, just the new age of being a church, so you have to have a, a live stream system. None of us thought we would ever have to have some crazy live stream system that we would have to rely on. Because we're going to go, most likely with cases being high right now in Evansville and around the country, um, we're, people are going to come and go to the church. And it's important to have a, a good live stream so people can watch at home if they're second home because either they're quarantining or for whatever it is. So still working on that. Pray that we can continue to have a reliable live stream system that don't, won't drop out. We've had that happen in the past. And so pray for that as we work through those kinks and things like that. So uh, Luke chapter 13, we're in verse 31 and 35, uh, coming to the end of this particular chapter in the book of Luke. And uh, I posted this on Facebook uh, this week. This will be our 45th sermon uh, in the book of Luke. Uh, that's pretty cool, um, and um, we kind of did this John MacArthur style. We just kind of went into the book with very little bit of a plan. We're just going to take a passage at a time and kind of just slowly go through it, um, but um, we will not be in Luke next week. Uh, Pastor Tim is going to be preaching um, our Reformation sermon next week, um, and so uh, that will be exciting. We'll look forward to that. So but this will be uh, Luke chapter 13, 31 through 35. And the title of this sermon is, His Compassion Never Fails. His Compassion Never Fails. Starting in verse 31. That very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day, and I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful again to be in your house, Lord, to be in the book of Luke, to be studying it the way that we've studied it, to go verse by verse, word by word. Lord, how you have revealed some things to us as a church, how you've revealed some things to us personally, individually, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that we can, can, pray, can preach 45 sermons through one book of the Bible, and talk about so many different subjects and topics. We pray, Lord, that for churches, you 
don't preach through the Bible this way and rarely do it, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would reveal the importance of doing that. The importance of reading your word and sitting under your word and allowing the word, your word to speak to us. Lord, we pray, Lord, as we open your word, that you would teach us today, that you would encourage us, challenge us, Lord, awaken us. Lord, if we are in sin, that you would awaken us to that sin. Lord, if we are being unfaithful to you, that you would show us where we are being unfaithful. And through your Holy Spirit, Lord, that you would convict us and move us to faith and belief. Lord, we pray for Christina Zaleski's father, Lord, who is in the hospital, Lord. We pray for him. Lord, we pray that you give wisdom to the doctor to figure out what's going on. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would heal him and that you would save him. We pray for our sister Christina, Lord, that you would encourage her this day. Give her strength. Lord, I pray, may she rely on you today as she sits with her father. Lord, we pray for others who are not with us. Lord, we pray that you would uh, encourage them this day, Lord, and bring them back to us next week. Lord, we pray for our country, Lord. We pray for the season that we're in. Uh, cases are, are rising again. Deaths are high again. Uh, Lord, uh, the election's coming up in a, in a few weeks. A lot of people have already voted. Lord, we just pray for our country. We pray for our churches, Lord, as we would preach the word, be faithful to the word. Encourage people, Lord, in the midst of this season, Lord, to rely on you and to put their faith in you. Not in a president, not in a political leader, but they would trust in you and know that you are Lord and that you are sovereign. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. So like I said before, the title of this sermon is His Compassion Never Fails. Never fails. Um, and the and the main before I say the main idea, the key words so of you for you kids here uh, who, are, who are sitting here, and hopefully we'll we'll start uh, children's church again very soon. Um, and uh, if you are someone who has the uh, ability or willing to volunteer in that ministry, we'd really appreciate it. We're down some volunteers. That's why we haven't started it yet. And so if we could help us close that gap, we would appreciate that. It's like really serving once a month or once every six weeks, that that's what you have to do. And we would appreciate your help. Uh, so just let us know if you can do that. But the key words here are desire, forsaken, and cancel. Desire, forsaken, and cancel. And uh, the main idea is that God's desire to redeem those who have forsaken him by forsaking his own son will not be deterred by the desires of men. And kind of to shorten that point, is that God's desire is to redeem a rebellious race for the death of his son, and it will not be impeded by anyone. It will not be impeded. It will not be deterred by anyone. And so the, kind of the first sub-point is, is the, the adversaries of God desire to impede Christ and his church. The adversaries of God desire to impede Christ and his church. Before I get into that, uh, as an introduction, um, John Calvin said that the origin and the fountains of all goodness is in Christ. That all the origin and the fountains of all goodness is in Christ. Um, one of my favorite non one of my favorite fictional novels that I had to read when I was a kid or read in high school was The Great Gatsby. Um, I am one of the people who did like the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio in it. Uh, a lot of people didn't like it. I liked it. I liked the story. I liked the book. I've read the book several times. 
I love the 1920s, like just the style of that era. I like the music. I like the how people dress. I, I just I watched Downton Abbey with my wife because I like the 20s. I just liked I just liked that time period. And so Great Gatsby takes place in that time period, the 1920s, right before the Great Depression would happen in 1929. F. Scott Fitzgerald, who's a, a great author, writes this, this novel about Jay Gatsby, who's this kind of playboy character who is in love with this woman that he had, had, he had a, kind of a fling with in his youth named Daisy. And really what the story is telling us is giving us this illustration of America during that time, which also is true today, of this kind of land of desire, this consumeristic capitalism, this excess. And a lot of the events and the settings and the certain, uh, certain, uh, certain like illustrations in the story, you have a lot of parties and a lot of excess. Um, and there's an, an interesting billboard in the story of this, and it's a doctor. It's an advertisement for a doctor wearing, and it has these big glasses. And it's Dr. T.J. Eckelberg. And it really kind of is this God figure who sees everything that's happening. And during the story, they'll indicate this, this billboard of the glasses. But in the movie, it'll, shoot, it'll, it'll show and, and, and this, 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 the glasses, this billboard, watching the events going on in the city. He sees the acts and, the, and he sees what's going on in human affairs, but this God figure is not able to act or inter intervene in the human affairs. He sees it. He sees the excess. He sees the, the adultery that's happening. He sees the, the sin and the wickedness that's happening, but he cannot act or intervene in the affairs. And the, the story of the Great Gatsby, the, 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 these characters in this story are wealthy and rich, and they believe, they delight in material, materialistic things, and they believe that these materialistic things will make them happy. It's a story full of materialism and idolatry and drunkenness and organized crime and domestic violence. There's one scene in the, in the story where Daisy's in the house of Jay Gatsby, he lives in this mansion, this huge mansion, and he had these major parties, these, these crazy parties, and all these people from the New York City would come to his mansion to, to, to go to these parties that he would throw. But he would, uh, so Daisy, the girl that he's in love with, comes over to his home, and she starts going through all his shirts, and he's got shirts in all different styles and colors, and she just flings them all over the place. This just shows the excess of all the things that he owns. He owns so many shirts in every color you could possibly think of. And there's a character who's like kind of a narrator, Nick Carowell, who just views and sees these lives and these the lives of the wealthy in New York. And just the, the and, and Jay Gatsby is the the poster boy for the American dream. This desire who he was he grew up poor and he became rich and he has all this money and all this wealth and he kind of flaunts it in his parties. Gatsby and, and, and Daisy and the, and the characters in the story have this purposeless splendor. They have all this money. They have all these parties, but there's really no purpose to them. They just do them because they're wealthy. They consume the good life with goods. This really kind of presents the, the, the American dream. But even in middle-class America, we're even not even talking about the wealthy of the wealthy in America, are full of stockpiles of supplies and clutter and toys. I thought there's an interesting statistic. Three-fourths of garages in America are full of stuff, not even cars. 
Some of you may have a garage full of stuff. You can't even put your car in there, right? Why do we have garage sales? Why? Because we have so much stuff that we have to get rid of it. We have to purge it. Why do we have storage facilities? Because we have so much stuff. We have to put it in a separate place because our house is too full of things. This is an interesting statistic. America, there's 3.1% of the children in the world are in America. But American children own 40% of the world's toys. I mean, my children have so many toys in the basement. They don't even play with 90% of the toys. And Christmas is coming up soon, right? We don't want to go They have more toys to add on to the toys they already have. We live in a world, we live in a, in a culture where we are basically conditioned to delight in what we believe will make us happy. And what we think will make us happy is more things. More things to put in our home, better furniture, better cars, better appliances, whatever it is, better toys for our kids. What we, what we need, what our soul needs, what our spirit needs, is we need to develop desire for the actual good, the real good, the fountain of all good, the source of all good, which that requires understanding. The context of Luke 13, 31 is that we've been slowly been shown what is good. What is good is what is in the kingdom of God. And how do you get to the kingdom of God? Repentance. Repentance of your sin, right? If you don't repent of your sin, you'll, be, you'll perish, Jesus says. He, the kingdom of God liberates the broken, liberates the, the weak. It's a narrow door, it's a narrow path. Strive to enter into the narrow way. Strive to enter into the kingdom of God. Strive to pursue the goodness that is in God. Acknowledge him before everything. Acknowledge him before men. Acknowledge Christ. Trust in him. Put your faith in him. But the problem is, is that our hearts are so broken, our hearts are so wicked, our hearts are so sinful, we cannot even delight in what is actually good. We cannot delight in what is actually the source and origin of all goodness, because our souls are broken. So here in, in, in Luke 13, 31, we have another episode of the Pharisees in Christ. It says in 31, at that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. So these Pharisees, for some odd reason, we don't know why, goes and, and seeks out Christ to help him, to save his life. He says that, they said that Herod wants to kill him. Herod Antipas is uh, one of the four kings in Palestine, and he is the ruler of Galilee, and he desire is to kill Christ, which is interesting because Herod has a lot of different, he's a conflict in his desires. We see in Luke chapter 9, 7 and 9, that he, that he hears about the ministry of Jesus. He thinks it's John the Baptist reincarnated or raised from the dead or some prophet that's come back from the dead. So he wants to seek out Jesus. So he wants to seek out Jesus. So he's curious about Christ. But yet in this story, he wants to kill Christ. In Mark chapter 6, 17 and 19, we, we know the story of how Herod kills John the Baptist. He beheads John the Baptist. And so he thinks that he's killed John the Baptist, but then now he sees the ministry of Jesus and says, what's going on? And John come back from the dead. I thought I'd beheaded him. And so he wanted to seek him, but now we see that he wants to kill him. This is the same Herod that is at the end of the story who wants to see Jesus uh, before he is crucified. 
And in that particular episode, you can tell even from that episode that Jesus does not have a high opinion of Herod because he doesn't even answer his questions. He refuses. He, Jesus did answer the questions of Pilate, but refused to answer the questions of King Herod. And this word, desire, will, is repeated four different times in this passage. It's a main or very key word in this passage. It's usually about King Herod, but his father, Herod the Great, also had a very conflicting relationship with Jesus. When the, when the wise man came to Jerusalem seeking the king, this was, a, this, was, this was news to Herod the Great. He thought he was king. What is he talking about a king being born in his realm? And so what does he do? He sends the wise men to, to, to go and to investigate and to come back so that he can go worship that king. But then we find out that, that the angel of the Lord gave a vision to the, the wise men that, and told them that actually Herod wants to, I'm sorry, uh, the, the angel said to Joseph, Jesus', uh, Jesus uh, uh, father, that Herod the Great wanted to kill Jesus and for them to secretly leave and go into Egypt. So there's this conflicting desires. Does King the Great want to go and worship Christ, or does he want to kill Christ? We know from the story that, that Herod the Great sent soldiers into Bethlehem and had all the firstborn sons killed. So these conflicting desires that are being presented. Does Herod want to worship Christ? Does he want to seek him out? Does he want to learn from him, or does he want to kill him? We see that the Pharisees also have conflicting desires, we see the Pharisees were angry with Jesus when he was healing on the Sabbath. We see that Jesus calls them out and says, woe are you. He says that they're basically dead man walkings, that they are uh, not the people of God. And he does his woes and talks bad about them in Luke 11, 53 through 12, verse 1. So there's conflicting desires of the Pharisees. Do they hate Jesus or are they trying to help him? I think what's going on is that they are convinced that if they can convince Jesus that there's a threat to his life, that he'll leave. And maybe he'll exile himself. Maybe he'll leave the area altogether. Maybe it'll interrupt their, his ministry and his progress. And this has been an issue to the entire life of Christ, that the Jewish power impeding on his mission, the Pharisees. We talked about Herod the Great when he was born impeding on his ministry, impeding on his mission, calling him basically the devil. Which tells us something that the, the threat of worldly power to impede the Christ church, that the Jewish people who try to impede on Jesus' ministry is not any different than what the world tries to do with the church. Impeding on its ministry, impeding on its mission. We see that in, in Acts chapter chapter six, when uh, um, Acts chapter eight one, when there was there was uh, there was persecution in the church, and they were dispersed out of Jerusalem because the persecution was so bad. We think about the history of the of Reformation and John Huss, who was burned at the stake because he was trying to to reform the church. The world trying to impede on the mission of the church. Martin Luther and, and the threats on his life. Again, the world's trying to impede on Christ's church. You think of all the different, different ministry groups and missionaries that have gone around the world. The world's trying to impede on the mission of Christ and the church. But, as we've already learned in this chapter, that, that Christ and his ministry and the, and the mission of the church and its growth is unstoppable. It's an unstoppable force in the world. The mustard seed, the leaven... 
It cannot be stopped. Whatever scheme or, 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 or strategy that the world tries to do to impede on the growth of the kingdom of God will not work. It's never worked. It won't work now. It won't work in the future. And that's what we learned so far in this story, that, that basically Jesus responds to this threat, and this is point number two, is that Christ's desire to fulfill God's plan. So Herod desires to impede. Pharisees also, I think, are, are desired to impede. But Christ's desire is to fulfill God's plan. So in verse 32, Jesus responds to the Pharisees and says, hey, hey, go and tell that fox, which is an interesting word. This is very, very few times where Jesus basically uses a, a, a name to, or some kind of negative term, derogatory term to, to say to someone, but he does not like Herod. He says he's a fox, which means that he's, he's cunning. He's a schemer. Basically, he's a liar. I mean, Jesus also called the Pharisees, or called the Jewish establishment, you brood of vipers. He's done this before. So Jesus is ready for this cunning attack. You know, he's, he's ready for their threats. He's not, he's not surprised by this. He understands what's going on. This is like, I don't know if you're a big football fan, or have ever watched football, but there's always a, if you catch it, it's always quite fun when, they, there's a, when the team like, uh, calls a fake punt. And it's like, so they're about to punt, and then they fake it. I mean, like the punter, you know, throws it or runs it. And it's always really funny when the defense is prepared for that, and the punter just gets demolished because he's like 100 and nothing, you know, and, and, and so he's got like the, like the lightest pads you can find, and he just gets hit so hard. And you just say that the defense was obviously not surprised by their scheme or by their trick. Jesus basically tells them, how this is going to work. He says, I don't really care that Herod thinks that he can kill me or he has a threat on my life. He's not in control of what's going on. I'm in control of what's going on. So he says, pay attention. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures, cures today, and tomorrow and the third day, I finish my course. This is the, the, the second time this word is used, this word of will, this word of desire. Herod used it in 31, and now Jesus uses it here. He says, I will finish my course. Here's my plan. I'm going to finish what I came here to do. I'm going to finish doing what I came here to do in this particular town or village. But also, I'm going to finish what I came to finish in my, in my, in my ministry as a whole. Not Herod, not you, not Satan, not anyone is going to stop me from doing my Father's will. Your threats on my life aren't going to prevent me from accomplishing what I've sought out to accomplish. My desire is to finish what I came to earth to finish. And God's saving plan through Christ and through the Holy Spirit will be accomplished. It will come to completion. The world, the Jewish people, whomever, will not deter, will not impede what God has sought out to accomplish. Christ will complete his plan. And not just simply in his life. You know, obviously he dies and he raises again on the third day and he ascends into heaven and he sends the Holy Spirit to indwell his church. But his, God's plan of completing his kingdom will not be impeded. He will finish his saving work in his life. The Holy Spirit will finish its work as well. 
And even you, you sitting in this room, I understand I'm not calling you Herod the Great. I'm not calling you Herod, King Herod. I'm not, not calling you a Pharisee. But even you will not impede his plan for your life. You cannot even impede it. You cannot deter God's plan for you. He, you just can't impede it. It's interesting about presidents. You know, I always love how presidents give these, these great addresses, either when they just become president or during their inauguration. They think they're going to accomplish all these things, right? They're going to accomplish all these different lists of things. And what ends up happening? There's impediment to their accomplishments. They can't not accomplish everything they want to accomplish. They're impeded by whom? They're impeded by rival parties. So if you're a Democratic president, you're impeded by the Republicans. If you're a Republican president, you're impeded by the Democrats. You're impeded by the agenda of others in your actual party. You're impeded by the media. You're impeded by other by voters who don't like what you're doing. And then they vote for a new Congress, which prevents you from doing what you want to accomplish. But God's plan is not impeded by anyone. God's plan through Christ will not be impeded. It will not be impeded by the world, by nations, by governments. But even you cannot impede God's plan in your life. And Jesus continues here. He says, nevertheless, I must go on my way, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. He even tells us more that you think that you can even kill me away from Jerusalem. I am going to be killed in Jerusalem. You can't even impede that part of God's plan. The plan of God is for Christ to be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and to be delivered over to men. Paul, I mean, uh, we even learned when, the, when the, the early church talks about this, when Peter and John are talking to the Jewish council and leaders, he says, he says that, you know, you, God, you are the people. Let me just go to Acts chapter 4 and just read this to show you, like, how God is plan will not be impeded. And it was not impeded. Verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them? And through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why do the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God, Christ was going to die, he was going to be rejected, he was going to be crucified in Jerusalem. His time had not yet come. God's plan was going to be fulfilled, it was going to be accomplished, and nothing could impede it. Nothing could derail it. Jesus' people will kill, the Jewish people will kill their Messiah in the city of God during the Passover. That's exactly what happens. Nothing will impede this from happening exactly as God wills. The third group of people who are mentioned here that has desires, continuing here in verse 33 and 34, humanity's desire to reject God's compassion. Humanity's desires to reject God's compassion. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. Again, this is the third time. 
Actually, this is the fourth time I'm going to mention the other third one, but where that word, will, desire, is mentioned. Herod had a desire to kill Jesus. Jesus' will and desire was to fulfill his father's plan and accomplishment. It accomplishes God's plan and God's will. The third thing is that God, Christ, was, would desire and will to gather them together. But what happens? They are unwilling. They are unwilling. He uses this term. Anytime the Bible repeats something twice, it's very important. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. You kill the prophets. You stone those who sent to it. You can take that and you can replace it with other cities and groups of people. Oh, Rome, oh, Rome, who kills the prophets and burn those who sent to it. Oh, Washington, oh, Washington, you re reject the prophets and you silence those sent to it. How often I would have gathered you, your children, together as a hen gathers your brood under her wings. How often I would desi desired to show you compassion, to expose you to my grace, to reveal my goodness to you, that you would be satisfied in me, that you would taste and see that I am good, and that you would find your refuge in me. But you desired not. I desire to show you my compassion. I desire to show you my grace. That I desire that you would be satisfied in me. That you would taste and see that I am good. But you desired not. It's one of the saddest statements in the Bible. In context, God desires to show compassion and treat them as if they were chicks. And the hen gathered them under her wing. But they don't desire it. They reject God's compassion. One of the saddest statements in the Bible. You rejected my compassion. You rejected my love. You desired power, wealth, safety, popularity, and praise. Your self-destruction through the selfish digression of the powers which aimed at self-preservation, which means that you desired self-preservation but your aim and, and the way that you went about doing that was through self-destruction. You chose things that lead to self-destruction, and your goal was to try to self-preserve yourself. Humanity desires for self-preservation outside of God's love and compassion and grace and presence. Jerusalem represents the wider world. You try so hard to have to preserve their lives, to find happiness, to find good, and they reject the actual origin and source of all good. The origin and fountain of all goodness. The story doesn't end there, does it? Yes, humanity is sinful. Humanity has fallen. Our, our, our desires are the things of the world. Our desires are to reject God. Our delight does not come in God because of sin. But God doesn't end with our hearts. He changes our hearts. God desires to forsake his son to redeem a forsaken people. God desires to forsake his son to redeem a forsaken people. Jesus responds and says, Behold, your house is forsaken because you've rejected God's compassion. And he's talking directly to the Jewish people and their way of life. And they trusted in the law and they trusted in their traditions and they trusted in their rituals. They didn't actually trust in God. What's so interesting about the life of Christ? Christ identifies fully with humanity. Not only did he come into the world as human, not only is he the God-man, 
He took on flesh. But what else did he do? In his baptism, he is baptized by doing what? Identifying with sinners. So interesting about his, his Christ's life is also his death. Right? He, he took on sin. Uh, he, sin was placed upon him for the forgiveness of our sins, to be a perfect offering for our sins. You know what was the interesting thing that led Martin Luther to the Reformation? I know we always kind of start with his reading of Romans. It's actually not where it started. He started when he was a professor at Wittenberg. There was a phrase from Jesus' words on the cross that struck him in the face. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Martin Luther's like, I don't understand. How can the Son of God be forsaken? He doesn't sin. We sin. We deserve to be forsaken by God. But why is Christ being forsaken by God? This caused him to wonder. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin. He made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This was God's majestic plan. That his eternal son would take on flesh, would preach and proclaim the kingdom of God, that he would die in the hands of men to be rejected by the Jewish people, reject their own Messiah, kill him in the holy city of God. It's all part of God's plan. And on the cross... Sin, the innocent, perfect son who never sinned, he was tempted in every way, Hebrews says, but yet did not sin. Sin was placed upon him, and what did God do? He forsaked him. He judged Christ on the cross. Judged him. We deserved it. Christ says it. Your house is forsaken. Why? Because you are sinful, unholy people. He rejects the compassion of God. He's talking to us as well. gospel is a gospel of the good news that God, the Son of God, took on flesh, took on sin, and bore the wrath that we deserve. He was forsaken so that we would not be forsaken. And this is such the good news, because why? Because all the other worldviews in the world do not have a place for a forsaken God. They don't have a place for a gospel where it redeems sinful people by the hero being forsaken. That's why we take the gospel to the lost world. Islam does not have this. Buddhism does not have this. Hinduism does not have this. Atheism does not have this. Animistic religions do not have this. Moralistic practices do not have this. Work-based righteousness that is... And, and gospels that look like Christianity but actually are not Christianity do not have this. New Age religions do not have this. The reason why John Calvin sent missionaries into France was to preach the true gospel that says a man is not redeemed by his works, but he is redeemed by the blood of Christ, that Christ was forsaken on the cross so that you would not be forsaken. Calvin sent missionaries into France and they were killed because they preached that gospel. Moravians went across the world preaching that gospel. William Carey went to India preaching that gospel. 
Judson went to Burma preaching that gospel. Jim Elliott was killed in South America preaching that gospel. Thousands of missionaries throughout the entire Christian age and history have died preaching that gospel. We today as a church, as pastors, as church planners, we preach that gospel that God forsaked his son so that you would not be forsaken. Therefore, do not forsake this great salvation. By grace you have been saved, not by works. In him there is no condemnation. Jesus is saying, like, you will not see me until uh, you, you basically, uh, as he says here, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You will not see me till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Don't overlook the gift of salvation. Basically, Jesus is saying here is that there's a time where God is showing you his compassion. He is showing your grace. I'm going to die so that, that, that you, can, you can see God's glory and his redemptive plan. But I'm going to come again. And if you have continued to reject this compassion and gospel, you will identify me properly as the one who comes in the name of the Lord. But it will be too late. As Paul says in Philippians 2, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord. This group, the whole world, recognizes his identity at some point. Either you will recognize it at this point and you will trust in the compassion and the gospel of God, or you will reject it, but then you will identify Jesus in the end as who he truly is. So don't reject God's compassion for you. We need to develop desires for the true good, the source of all goodness. How do we do this? Our hearts are dead, right? Before we are, before we are saved by Christ, before we are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, our hearts are completely dead to God. We don't delight in the things of God, right? Because our hearts are dead. Joy in God and finding delight in God and finding delight in Christ is impossible with a broken heart, a sinful heart. Desiring Christ more than money is impossible without a changed heart. Why did Jesus say that when the disciples were surprised by this, that it was impossible for a man to enter into the kingdom of heaven? All things are impossible with man, but all things are possible with God. Desire Christ above the pursuits of excess, to the pursuits of money, pursuits of materialism, is a gift of God. Jesus says to uh, Nehemiah, you must be born again. The gift of repentance is a gift from God. You need a new heart to delight in God. Jeremiah 31, 33, I will put my law within you. Ezekiel eleven nineteen. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. These promises are all fulfilled in Christ, and God will give you this new heart. He will give you the, the ability to desire him, to delight in him. He will give you a new heart, a new spirit, so that you may desire him above all else. Augustine says, give me the grace, O Lord, to do as you command, and command me to do what you will. O holy God, when you command are obeyed, it is from you that we receive the power to obey them. You must delight in God. 
but you have to have a new heart to delight in God. Only God can change your heart to delight in him. It's all about grace. Everything's about grace. You sitting in church, receiving the word of God, knowing this is important to you, that you come and worship God and be with the church is a gift. You would not do this on your own. It's all by God's grace. And how do we, where do we start? We have to realize that God's word is true. His word is truth. It is a source of all joy. So therefore, we're thankful that God's word tells us what is true. We're thankful that we have been received, we've received grace, that it's all because of God that we are what we are. We have to have a greater urgency to delight in God and delight in Christ above the things of the world. We need to fight against legalism and techniques. You know, there's, there's ways of, like, if I just do the right formula, then I'll delight in God. We have to realize that God's the one that gives us this desire. Relying on his grace. And we're doing it all for his glory. The problem that we've been learning through this passage is, is that our hearts desire the wrong things. The Jewish people desire the wrong things. The Pharisees desire the wrong things. Herod, Herod the king desires the wrong things. God wants to show us compassion. He wants us to delight in him because that is what we were created to do is to delight in him and to find our happiness in him. Do not reject his gift. Do not reject the gift of salvation. Do not reject the gift of the church. Do not reject the gift of discipleship. Do not reject the gift of prayer that people pray for you. Do not reject the gift of repentance and confession. Do not repent the gift of worship. These are all because of God's gifts. He gives you these things. These are ways that you will delight in him. Which is that he is the source and fountain of all goodness. It's all by his grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that you are the fountain and source of all goodness, Lord. Our hearts delight in the world. We delight in excess. We delight in materials, Lord. We delight in money. We delight in, in fancy things and better jobs. We, we delight in a lot of things, Lord, that are not you. And Lord, you're, you have poured your compassion on us. You have poured your grace on us. You have forsaken your son on the cross to save us, to redeem us. Lord, you've shown in so many ways how much you love us. Lord, let us not overlook your gift of salvation. Lord, may we not reject the gift of your salvation. May we not reject the gift of repentance and the gift of worship and the gift, the gift of discipline and the gift of, of your word and all the gifts that you provided, Lord, to remind us and to teach us how much we should delight in you and find our good in you and desire you above all things. Lord, may our, con may our desires not be in conflict, but may our desires be rooted only in you. Lord, we thank you, we love you, we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.